everybody. Robin Conrad's here with Traditional Bowhunter Magazine's Campfire Chat Podcast. In this episode, I chatted with Nancy Dorn about how she became a traditional bowhunter, her work as a wildlife biologist, and her role with the National Becoming an Outdoors Woman program. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the campfire. Hey there, welcome back to another edition of Traditional Bowhunter Magazine's Campfire Chat. Today I have the extreme pleasure of introducing one of my favorite people in the world. Nancy Dorn is a wildlife biologist and she does work with uh, becoming an outdoor woman and she's also a traditional bowhunter. So welcome Nancy. Hi Robin, thanks for having me. Yeah, this is going to be fun. Just to get started, why don't you tell us a little bit about your early years in the the outdoors. Okay. Well, my early years, probably much to my mother's dismay, were filled with lots of dirt and weird things in the house. So <laughs> um, I, uh, I grew up in the city and I did not come from an outdoor family. We didn't do family vacations. We didn't do camping or uh, any of those types of things. And nobody in my family hunted. And uh, I guess I was the youngest of three kids. I have two older brothers, and I always wanted to be a Boy Scout like my oldest brother because they seemed to have more fun than Girl Scouts did. But I I stuck with Girl Scouts and got my fill of camping and hiking that way and just kind of introduced myself to the outdoors, I guess. I would have my mom take me to the local state park and drop me off on a rock for the day, and I'd sit and fish with cheese balls and, and pieces of bologna. And I was always up in the vacant lot up the street from where I grew up, playing around in the woods and looking for treasures and digging in the dirt and climbing trees. So I guess that's where my love for the outdoors started. And I've always loved animals and wildlife and grew up watching Wild Kingdom and wanted to be, I always said I wanted to be Marlon Perkins when I grew up, but I think I really wanted to be Jim because he was the one that was always wrestling the alligators and (laughs) all of the other cool wildlife while Marlon sat in the Jeep and watched. (laughs) Yeah, you want to be the one doing the action, huh? Yes, yes, not watching the action. <laughs> so then how did hunting enter in? Well, it wasn't anything I ever thought I would do in a million years, to be honest. I uh, went to college and ended up, I started out in pre-vet and tried forestry, and then I tried oceanography, thinking I would be the next Jacques Cousteau. <laughs> and then I ended up in wildlife biology and management, and While I learned about hunting as a tool to use for wildlife management, I never thought I would actually participate in hunting. And it really took me several years after I got out of college before I kind of dipped my toe in the waters of of hunting and, and had a desire to find out what it was all about. And that was a result of the first job I ever got working in my field and listening to hunting stories, working with hunters, and that's where my salary was paid and where a lot of the funding for the agency that I worked for came from the sale of hunting licenses and, and revenue. So it it was kind of a, I guess just a personal interest to delve more into that and see that side of things, never really thinking that I was going to become a hunter myself, which is what eventually happened. So just a way to maybe understand what these people were looking for, why they were hunting, why there's so many kind of what the draw is. Yeah, I guess the attraction, 
um, you know, listening to people, talking to people, including coworkers, working check stations during deer season, just trying to understand and, and I think lend myself some credibility in the field. Mm-hmm. Because personally, not that this is everybody's philosophy, but personally, my philosophy was that if I'm going to work as a wildlife biologist working for a state agency, then it would lend a little bit of credibility if I knew what I was talking about from the perspective of hunters and hunting, you know, how to, how to find game, how to, you know, stalk all of the different skills and, and things that go into hunting, whether you bring an animal home or not. And I, I think I just felt personally that I needed to do that to make myself a better employee and somebody that the public could trust when they called for information or advice uh, and just help me do a better job at what my responsibilities were in that particular position. Mm-hmm. And that's a great outlook. You know, there's uh, nothing worse than calling somebody and getting bad advice, you know, or someone who doesn't know. Exactly. And I, you know, I'm not afraid to say I don't know, but I also didn't want to be somebody who said I don't know when it was totally in my control to get the, that experience and, and be more informed and, and try to be more helpful. Mm-hmm. Now, your first hunt was not with a bow, correct? Correct. It was uh, actually when I first started hunting, I uh, was for white-tailed deer in Maryland, and I started hunting with a borrowed left-handed 270 rifle, and I'm right-handed, so that posed a few challenges, <laughs> trying to, to work the bolt and, and load the gun and handle the gun. Hunting's not hard enough already, huh? <laughs> I know, right? And, and, you know, because I didn't grow up doing that type of stuff, I didn't have, um, I didn't have any advantage to being familiar with firearms very much. I mean, I'd shot a little bit, but mostly 22s. And uh, so I borrowed that gun for the first season, and then I was introduced to muzzleloaders, and once I tried muzzle loading, that was it. I was sold on the, the primitive aspect, you know, one shot, all of the equipment. I liked the old time percussion, the old time flintlock, and just the, the added challenge of, of using a firearm like that for hunting. And it was five years before I harvested my first animal, so <laughs> it took me a while. Yeah, it's not easy. Yeah, and and a lot of people need to understand that that just because you hunt doesn't necessarily mean you're going to kill something. No, and and to me that that's not even why I go. I mean, I yeah, it is nice when you bring something home and have meat to put in the freezer, but a successful hunt to me doesn't mean taking an animal. You know, and there's so much that goes into the hunt from the equipment that you use and the clothing that you wear and deciding where you're going to go, when you're going to go, the scouting, being familiar with the terrain and the area. But um, with the muzzleloader, each year I hunted, I felt like I got one step closer to, or I shouldn't say one step closer to success because I don't mean that. I, I guess one, I got better. I got something improved. I learned to, I'm not one to sit still very well for long periods of time. Mm -hmm. And I'm also not one to be quiet (laughs) very well for long periods of time. (laughs) And when you're hunting, those two things can be challenging. So learning to sit still, learning to judge my environment and, and be an observer of the sights and the sounds and the smells when you're out there. And you know, the anticipation of hearing a sound in the woods and trying to determine, is it a turkey? Is it a squirrel? Is it a deer? Mm-hmm. Is it a, another hunter? Uh, and and trying to be quiet and sneak in and sneak out. And I guess 
trying to know as much about the animal that you're hunting as possible and meeting it at its own level in its habitat and being able to sneak in on it uh, and and all of those you know tiny mm-hmm. details are important. Yeah, your woodsmanship skills. Yeah, and I had a long ways to go in learning a lot of that stuff. You don't—they don't teach you that in college. <laughs> so, um, you know, the—you can learn all all kinds of stuff by reading books and sitting in classes. And and while we did have a lot of field experience, it it wasn't in hunting or or anything related to hunting per se, mm-hmm. other than maybe going out and being able to identify the sign that deer leave behind. You know mm-hmm. what what deer browse looks like compared to rabbits. Mm-hmm. and maybe some other animals, but learning all, all of those little details by experiencing them, I think, is what made all the difference for me. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like that experience or your outlook on hunting fits right in with traditional bow hunting. So so where does traditional bow hunting come in for you? So hunting in general didn't come into my life until I was in my 30s, which is totally non-traditional way of going about things Mm -hmm. and traditional bow hunting I had never shot a bow in my life even I don't even think I'd ever shot one of those little suction cup bows as a kid (laughs) at camp Um, but traditional archery came in with my late husband um, who taught me to shoot a bow and that was probably in the early 2000s and I'm one of these people I'm willing for the most part, there's a few things I won't do, like jump out of a perfectly good aircraft <laughs> to go skydiving. But I'm usually willing to try anything. And so when he said, well, do you want to shoot a bow? I was like, yeah. I mean, that was his passion and his life. And so I wanted to learn. So he taught me how to shoot a bow and was a lot more patient with me than I thought he would be. But worked out okay. And I started shooting uh, a longbow. He bought me a recurve. And then I got a longbow after that, and I actually took the longbow a lot better than I took to my recurve, for whatever reason. I didn't, nothing in particular, just personal preference. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've been hunting with traditional equipment ever since, and I still use my muzzleloader as well and stick to the primitive side of, of that. And it, the whole primitive skill is what appeals to me, so the challenge, the to me, the added knowledge without all that technology, mm-hmm. the simplicity, mm-hmm. and even the romance of making some of your own equipment and being proud of the accomplishments that you are taking things into the field that you created with your hands. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and I, I, I like that. I like that whole side of things. So Dave made arrows, so I imagine he taught you how to make arrows, but did you ever make any of your other equipment? Did you ever make a bow or... You know, I I didn't. He he made arrows and he did custom leather equipment, so quivers, arm guards, all those types of things. Uh, he didn't make bows, but uh, he he taught me how to make my own arrows, so I I still have the setup to do that. Mm-hmm. And I really like making arrows. It's, there's a few steps I don't have the equipment for anymore, so I have to rely on other people to uh, maybe do the um, the dipping, mm-hmm. but. Otherwise, I, I like picking out the colors. I like the fletching. I like I love cresting. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've made a few arm guards, and uh, I've made a string or two, although I'm not really adept at, at that skill, but I have made a string or two for, for my bows over the years. 
And I just, I don't know, there's something to be said for shooting arrows that you made as opposed to arrows that somebody else made Mm -hmm. or that you just bought off the shelf. And I shoot wood. So um, I don't know. I just, again, it's personal preference, but you hear people say it all the time about the romance of traditional archery. And and I, I think it's true, though, that... It's it's kind of why I love it. <laughs> yeah. And for listeners who aren't aware, uh, Nancy was married to Dave Dorn, who owned Archery Past in Bend, Oregon for, what, 30 years? Yeah, probably, shoot, 40. Yeah. Yeah. Probably by the time we sold the business, probably close to 40. Yeah. yeah. And Dave was always great about mentoring other people, you know, putting a bow in somebody's hand and, and helping them to learn mm-hmm. how to shoot a traditional bow. Um, you know, I know he's helped me with lots of things. He helped TJ learn how to uh, build arrows, and one of his favorite things to do is building arrows. So, uh, you know, Dave mm-hmm. was Dave was a great um, ambassador for the sport. Yep, definitely, and it, it was his passion. He was a dyed-in-the-wool traditional bow hunter. He he had his opinions, and he stuck to them. And I admired his passion for all things traditional archery, and just a fountain of knowledge. But, you know, it's interesting because I, I think of the people that I know in, in my community, and, and it's like a family. Mm-hmm. You know, once you, you get into the traditional archery world, you know, your friends become family. Mm-hmm. And I can't think of anybody that I know that I still keep in touch with and see on a regular basis that doesn't have that same passion that Dave had as far as putting bows in people's hands and wanting to teach people and helping them learn the skills that they want to learn, whether it's building arrows or sharpening broadheads, which that was a that was a big challenge for me, learning how to properly sharpen broadheads. Dave always said, if you're going to get into this sport of traditional archery, you're going to know how to take care of your equipment, how to use your equipment, how to fix your equipment, how to sharpen your own broadheads. He said, I'm not doing it for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you're going to do this, you're going to do it yourself. So there were lots of ups and downs, and there were lots of tears, I'll admit, (laughs) nights before, you know, traveling out of state to go hunting and trying to figure out how to sharpen my broadheads and finding out that the way he did it is not the way I should be doing it. That didn't work for me. Mm -hmm. And finding that method that did work for me where I could have success and be happy and shave all the hair off my arms and head to the field with confidence that my broadheads were sharp enough. Yeah. And, you know, for a lot of women, I think that they get into hunting, but they do it because maybe because their husband is hunting or, uh, you know, he, he puts her in a tree stand and then comes back and picks her up. And they don't get that feeling of accomplishment of doing it yourself. Um, so that's really cool that you had to make sure your equipment was prepared and you were responsible for for your hunt, for the outcome. Yep. So, uh, so yep. that's really cool. Yeah. And I, I take pride in that. I, you know, I know a lot of women that hunt. I know a lot of women that go out and shoot things, <laughs> which is to me the scenario that you kind of talk about where, you know, they, they're given the equipment, they're dropped off, they shoot something, and then somebody comes back and gets them, and then their job is done. But for me, I take a lot of pride in being able to get my equipment ready to go, preparing for every aspect of the hunt, even up to the point of field dressing the animal after I shoot it, if I'm lucky enough to shoot something. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe that's not what everybody's interest is or where everybody's skill level is or even where they want it to be. But for me personally, it was very important for me 
to be able to do all that from start to finish. And I remember every detail of every hunt that I've been on, whether I took an animal or not. And usually there's some type of silly misadventure involved. So that <laughs> oh, I can't imagine. adds to the fun and excitement. No. <laughs> so, so tell us about maybe your favorite hunt. I know you've been to some really cool places, but what was your favorite hunt? Yeah, I don't um I think you know, it's hard to say they're yeah, all they're, favorites they're all for different reasons. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and whether I got an animal or not didn't really matter. But I think probably my favorite was going down to Marfa, Texas to hunt javelina. And that was there were a lot of reasons why that I think back on that hunt and it was my favorite. One of the reasons is because it was my first traditional harvest ever. And I was able to get two javelina with my longbow. It was just the the type of the challenge of that type of terrain hunting in Texas where everything has giant spines on it. So you can't grab anything, sit on anything, drive over anything. (laughs) You know, you always have to be watching your backside and, so that it's just challenging environment to be in being out with javelina an animal I'd never seen other than probably in a zoo. You just kind of need to figure out how to hunt them. And they're perfect for traditional equipment because you can, you can sneak in on them pretty closely and get at ranges that are just great for traditional equipment. And it was also the hunt where uh, I had gotten the nickname of Nancy Prancy from Glen St. Charles <laughs> when we went to one of the Compton traditional rendezvous and he was laughing because as I mentioned before, I don't sit still for long periods of time very well and long periods of time could be five minutes. (laughs) (laughs) And he started calling me Nancy Prancy because that's what he said I was always doing. And Glenn had just recently passed away and some mutual friends, very good friends in Seattle sent me a hat that belonged to Glenn. And that's the hat that I wore on that hunt. And that way I had Glenn with me kind of for good karma. Oh, that's great. I think. Yeah, yeah. That's great. So was he um, someone who was influential in your bow hunting? He was because, you know, once, once I got introduced to traditional bow hunting and I started meeting people not only around Oregon, and, and learning about the rich history of traditional bow hunting in Oregon and traditional archery in Oregon is really fascinating and then I started to meet other folks that, to me, were celebrities in the world of traditional archery. Glenn was one of those. And I didn't really realize it at the time, what an influential person he was, you know, the founder of the Pope and Young Club. And I had no idea. And I felt like I was, when I, when I talked to Glenn, he was so down to earth and so funny. And I would just laugh at all of his little phrases that he said all the time. It it was like meeting a Hollywood movie star, I guess, in some respects, as stupid as that might sound. (laughs) You know, what was nice about Glenn is he never came across that way. You know, unless someone else told you. He didn't. He wouldn't have told you he was famous. (laughs) Somebody else would have. Right, exactly. And that's how I found out. Yep, that's how I found out. But, I, you know, it didn't make me treat him any differently. Mm -mm. Uh, He was fun to hang out with. He was fun to talk to. Uh, I got the privilege of shooting with him several times at, at the Compton Rendezvous. And uh, it was just a lot of fun. And then meeting the other members of his family, his kids, some of the other folks that were kind of in his circle led me to great friendships with some, some other people in Washington. And I mean, I just, I just think of all the people that I have in my life now, and the vast majority are from traditional archery. 
and how enriching that it's made my life. And it, it, it's not even necessarily the people that I know, but it's become part of my lifestyle and part of who I am now. Mm-hmm. I mean, huge influence because of traditional archery and even, you know, you and TJ and Larry Fisher and, you know, some of the other folks, I mean, you guys are celebrities <laughs> in your own right. You know, you say you're friends with, you know, TJ Conrad's and Robin Conrad's and, oh my gosh, you know, they, they own the magazine. <laughs> so it's, it's not name dropping, but it, it's kind of cool. I mean, I feel important because I know you guys. <laughs> Well, we're pretty lucky to know you, and and you have added a lot back to the sport as well. I mean, Dave did, but but you were also, uh, still are, uh, very involved in mentoring women in the outdoors. So tell us about your um, your work with becoming an outdoors woman. Yeah, well, it's it's a program near and dear to my heart, and I've tried to give back as people have given to me over the years. So the Becoming an Outdoors Woman program started in Wisconsin, I believe, in 1992, and it was a program designed to try and break down the barriers to the participation of women in the outdoors, whether it be hunting, shooting sports, fishing, or just how to use a GPS, how to trailer a boat and get it in the water. Uh, There were a lot of barriers that were identified. So the program was started in 92 in Wisconsin, in Maryland, where I was working at the time, picked it up in 1995 and has been doing the program for 24 24 years, as a lot of the other states in the country have been doing the program as well. And it's, it's really cool to be part of something where you take women who may or may not have any experience doing any outdoor activities whatsoever and bring them into an environment whether it's a one-day workshop or a three-day weekend workshop, and give them the skills and the equipment to try one of probably 30 or 40 different outdoor activities in a totally comfortable, non-threatening environment. So, you know, putting a bow in their hands and letting them shoot at balloons and showing the difference between longbows and recurves, and we we do use uh, a very basic compound bow and how to use tree stands, and I get a lot out of the program, and I know a lot of our volunteer instructors get a lot out of the program, no matter what the topic is that they teach, and it's allowed me to share my love and passion for traditional archery, for muzzleloading, and for some of the other classes that I've taught over the years, but I get just as much back from the smile on a woman's face when she hits a balloon for the first time or hits the 3D target. And it, it's those aha moments that make you realize why you're doing all of this. Yes. Especially at those times when you're kind of wondering why you're still doing some of this. <laughs> it reinforces the good, the good aspects. But it sounds really cool that women can come in, a, like you said, a non-threatening environment and, learn any number of skills. I'm sure it goes from Dutch oven cooking to fishing to, um, you know, a wide variety of things. Do you find that you have women who come back over and over for different different classes or are they able to, to do a bunch of things in one, uh, in one seminar? So uh, over our three-day weekend workshop, which is the basic Becoming an Outdoors Woman workshop, and it's, it's the same in all states. So it's kind of like a McDonald's where you go into any McDonald's in any state 
and you order a Big Mac, you know what you're going to get. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing with becoming an outdoors woman. You can go to a three-day weekend workshop in any state, and pretty much the format is the same, although the classes might differ. But we have a lot of women that are repeats because over the course of three days, we might offer 40 different classes, mm-hmm. and they can take four over the course of the weekend. And we provide all of the equipment for those four classes. And so obviously, if women have an interest in a lot of different things, they want to come back over multiple years. Plus, one of the nice things is, for example, if you come in and you take, let's say, shooting sports, and you take a shotgun class, a rifle class, the archery class, and maybe handgun, and then you decide, hey, you know, maybe I'd like to check out hunting. So you come back the next time and you might take turkey hunting, deer hunting, and maybe a map and compass and maybe GPS because those go along with it. Well, now you want to make it a family thing and the whole family is going to go camping while some of the family may hunt or some of the family may go fishing. So now you want to learn how to uh, set up camping equipment, uh, what things you need to consider when you're purchasing a tent, purchasing binoculars, how to use your digital camera, how to cook in a Dutch oven. So everything is, is related Uh, There's a big web uh, Mm -hmm. that connects a lot of the classes together, giving people the opportunity to learn all types of skills. And the idea is then that they can go do these things as a couple, as a family, or with their friends and be more comfortable in the outdoors with the equipment, knowing they can walk into a sporting goods store and they know what to ask for, what to look for, which is really intimidating for a lot of women. And I've had firsthand experiences with that at sporting goods stores where people have questioned my, you know, when I walk in and I say, I want this type of bullet for my muzzleloader and I want a box of 100, they say, oh, you don't need that many. You only need 20 or 30. I'm like, no, I'm telling you, this is what I want. I know exactly what I want. And that's intimidating for a lot of people to have to deal with things like that. So we try to instill the skills and give them the confidence to go buy equipment, whether it's even basic hunting clothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, where do you go to get clothing that fits women? I wore men's hunting clothing for a long time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and they can't just pink it and shrink it and expect it to fit on a woman. No. So how would someone go about contacting their own state to be part of the becoming an outdoors woman program? If you're interested in becoming an outdoors woman, you can do a basic Google search. Just type in becoming an outdoors woman program and there's a main page that's housed under the University of Wisconsin at Stevens Point which is where the national, I say the national program, uh, they provide support to the states and they also have their own program, but you can go there and they keep a a listing of all of the states that are currently providing Becoming an Outdoors Woman workshops and links to those states' websites. So no matter what state you're in, uh, there's, I'm not sure what the exact count is off the top of my head, but it's probably probably around 40 different states offer Becoming an Outdoors Woman, as well as several of the Canadian provinces, and I think even Australia That's is still awesome. offering workshops. I know. I would love to go to one in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a business trip, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? You you want to go with me? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> we can go to Australia. But, uh, but yeah, you can get information that way. People can certainly feel free to go to their own. It, most of the, work, the programs are housed under the state fish and wildlife agencies, so whatever their state DNR or Department of Fish and Wildlife is. But if they do just do a Google search and becoming an outdoors woman, 
They could even say becoming an outdoors woman in, in Alabama. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or I- Idaho is one of the states that does not offer it. No kidding. Believe it or not. <laughs> wow. No, they. Do I don't know that they've that. ever offered. Yeah, a governor or two ago. This is my understanding, so I don't know how accurate the story is. But um, when the program was first getting started, the governor at the time said, all of the women in Idaho are outdoors women, so we don't need to offer these workshops. Oh. And it's, you know, maybe there are lots of outdoor women in Idaho, but I'm sure there are probably lots of women that would aspire to be an outdoor woman. And, you know, the other other thing with becoming an outdoors woman is I've been lucky in that the, the men that I know, either as friends or, you know, Dave, were patient enough to teach me. But that's not the case with everybody. Mm -hmm. Sometimes your spouse or significant other is not the best person to teach you how to do something because there's lots of unrealistic expectations on both sides. Patience gets lost. Things Mm -hmm. get frustrating. So sometimes going to a program like Becoming an Outdoors Woman to learn from somebody you don't know or maybe you do know somebody that teaches is is a better way. Or, you know, ask a friend to take you out if you're interested in learning something. Mm -hmm. I know I'm always willing to take folks out. I have lots of equipment, outdoor equipment I'm willing to share. I have bows. I have muzzle loaders. I'm always happy to take anybody that wants to learn about outdoor activities out with me. But sometimes even just asking is, is hard. The- biggest first step to take. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, it sounds like that the network of that program would be huge. You know, when you think of 40 states and all of the people that it takes to, to teach the women. Now, are most of the instructors women or are there male instructors as well? There are male instructors. A lot of people always ask and fill out our evaluations at the end of the workshops and say, we wish you had more women instructors. Mm-hmm. And we wish we did too, but we try to find the best instructor for that subject matter, regardless of whether it's male or female. We want to provide good quality instruction. Good. If we can find women to do that, then that's great. But a lot of our instructors are men. We usually try to you maybe pair up a male and female instructor if possible. But it, it's not always the case because there are still barriers to, to getting more women involved in outdoor recreation. And women, probably myself included, are self-deprecating where you don't think you're mm-hmm. skillful, skilled mm-hmm. enough and capable enough to teach a class in whatever the subject is. And even in archery, it took me a long time before I was willing to take that step and felt like I knew enough to help somebody else learn. But if you participate in the activity, no matter what it is on a regular basis, and you're working with someone who has very little to no experience, you already have a step up and have something to offer and have something to teach them. And that's all they're asking for is you know, just to start with the basics and go from there. And, and I always learn something from the folks that I teach and work with, mm-hmm. no matter what their skill level. Well, that's great. So as far as traditional archery goes, do you, you know, do you, what do you see the future of traditional archery? Um, and, and maybe for women or just for archers in general? Well, I I think there's promise. Women right now are the Across the country, as we all know, the numbers of hunters have been either stabilizing in some states and and dropping in some Mm -hmm. states. But women are actually making gains. So the number of women getting involved in hunting is increasing. 
and not by huge leaps and bounds, but it is increasing. So I think there's promise in that respect to get more women out. I think there's a big movement right now with millennials and people kind of getting back to their roots and wanting to know where their food comes from. And the whole concept of farm to table and harvesting your own food and taking it from the deer in the field or the rabbit in the field to your dining room table Mm -hmm. and being able to enjoy every aspect of that whole experience. And I see a lot of people wanting to get away from all the technology, uh, all the gizmos and gadgets that you can put on a bow. And I always joke with friends and, and coworkers, you know, we get into these friendly debates because I say in the states that allow a lot of the technology, you can basically kill deer with anything short of a bazooka. And <laughs> and I think there's a lot of appeal for people to get back to the simplicity of traditional you know, something breaks on your bow, it, either the bow broke and you need a new bow or the string. Mm-hmm. And really, what else is going to go wrong? Whereas if you have a compound or a crossbow and something goes wrong, you're you're dead in the water until you either get a whole new piece of equipment or it goes to the shop to get repaired. And I think the amount of gear you take into the field with traditional as opposed to modern, mm-hmm. again, it's it's simplistic. It's simple. It's low tech as opposed to, or, or even no tech <laughs> mm-hmm. as opposed to high tech. And, and I think that those aspects are appealing to a lot of people and a lot of people I meet. The women at our workshops, for example, we have the rack out and we'll have long bows hanging and we'll have recurves hanging and we have a very basic compound bow hanging. And a lot of them just love the look of the wooden bow and that's what they'll pick up. They like, oh, you know, that's like Robin Hood mm-hmm. and that's what they want to shoot. It's not everybody's cup of tea, but I think there's hope and promise. I think it's regaining some of its popularity. And I think with movies like The Hunger Games and Brave and some of the remakes of Robin Hood, all the romance that goes along with traditional archery is is making a comeback. Mm-hmm. Maybe it didn't need to make a comeback. Maybe it's always been there, but it's just kind of being pushed a little bit more to the forefront now. Right. Right, because there's always been women in archery. I mean, we have the archives that go back and show women hunters, you know, back in the 30s, mm-hmm. hunting with traditional equipment and sometimes out shooting their, their husbands. <laughs> yeah, yeah, So I, definitely. I think it's always yep. been there, but like you said, it's, it's coming out into the forefront. And, you know, we're seeing a lot more families getting into this sport. I just love to go to like the Compton Rendezvous and the um, Denton Hills shoot. And just to see the young families with young kids, and they're excited. It's something that they can all do together. And, uh, you Mm -hmm. know, and it fits right in with that outdoor stuff, the camping, the cooking, the fishing. So it is exciting for us to see this uh, switching to more. I guess it's not switching. It's probably always been a family activity. But that's really encouraging for us to see young people coming into it. Yeah. And, and I think with all the things that people can be involved with these days, especially kids, mm-hmm. you know, the, the school clubs, the sports, the, all the demands on everybody's time, parents, kids, whoever, it's nice to see them making that a priority and taking the time, you know, as opposed to picking some other activity that they could be doing, mm-hmm. that they're going to these archery shoots and they're learning how to shoot and And whether they hunt or not, maybe they just like target shooting with the traditional equipment. You know, that's great that they're taking the time and have the interest to do that as a family. And I know one thing I want to learn how to do, I want to go bow fishing. I've never been bow fishing, and it looks like a total kick in the pants. 
And I've had invitations from people, and I, I should just really make it a priority and figure out how to get back to Idaho, out to Utah, over to Oregon, and take some of these friends up on their invitation to go boat fishing, because I think I would just absolutely love it. Well, and being in Maryland there, um, uh, Rob Davis used to take people out shooting stingrays. And that was one of oh, T- really? TJ's favorite trips was to go out and shoot stingrays out there in Maryland. So, you know, it, it's, huh. you don't have to go, don't have to go west to do that. There's all kinds of opportunities, uh, you know, down south, um, like uh-huh. I said, in, in your own state of Maryland. Yep. That, that would be cool. Yep. So I think it would be fun. Yeah. Yeah, I might have to uh, make that a priority for myself. Yeah, there you go. A new adventure. You're pretty good at adventures. Didn't you just get back from Africa? (laughs) I did, yeah. I went to Uganda in April for two weeks on a wildlife safari trip, and it was unbelievable. It was my first overseas vacation, my first trip to Africa, first time flying over the ocean to get someplace, 17 hours on a plane, and it was just out of this world. It was, uh, and that was actually through becoming an outdoors woman program. <laughs> oh, that's great. So, um, well, I guess we can wrap this up. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Uh, I can't think of anything in particular other than, you know, letting people know not to get discouraged when they go out and pick up a, a traditional equipment or if they're looking to figure out how to get involved in traditional archery to keep at it and find somebody and, You know, if they don't know somebody, even though I'm in Maryland, I've had people from other states contact me, and I have not a huge network, but I have a fairly wide-reaching network, and I'm happy to always put people in touch with folks I know in other places to get them involved. And uh, Same here. I think I had a friend in Maryland call who wanted to get connected with some traditional archery people. (laughs) Yes. I wonder who that was. uh, You know, you you move into a new state and and you think, I'm the only one who shoots this kind of equipment. And so a lot of times folks will call the magazine and I can't give out uh, the person's information, but I'll sure look for somebody that's maybe a subscriber that's close to them or a PBS member or someone that's in their general vicinity and ask if they'll help. And 99% of the time, it's a yes so, uh, yep. you know, there are mentors out there, like you said, there are people who want to help. Um, it's just a matter of connecting. So for most folks, it's a matter of connecting with their local club and then their state club, because those, you know, that's really where the action happens. Those people work really hard. Mm-hmm. And I, I know you've worked really hard with uh, with your state clubs in Oregon and with some national or regional clubs over there as far as putting on shoots and you know, there's, uh, like yep. I said, lots of people that want to help. Clubs always need help. You know, it always ends up being a few people who do most of the work. So by being a part of your local club, you maybe can take take the load off some of the people who are doing all the work. Yep, and make, make some new friends and learn some, some new skills in the meantime. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. Well, Nancy, thanks for taking the time to chat with me today. This has been really fun. It has been fun. Thank you. Okay. Take care. You too. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this Campfire Chat podcast. Thanks for joining us. Please subscribe to this podcast so you won't miss the next one. And visit our website, www.tradbow.com, for great articles, tips, and lots more of traditional bow hunter magazines.